Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. This is going to be our last uh, class here for the, uh, for the duration of the time uh, of the Pesach holiday. Unfortunately uh, for this class, I'm, go- I'm going to be going away to uh, run a Pesach program with uh, a few of my rabbinical colleagues uh, in Vallarta. And um, we look forward to resuming the class as and when. Um, if there is a request, if people would like me to do so, potentially, while I'm out there, I can uh, record a couple of messages and send them out over Passover if that is something that people would appreciate. Uh, let me know in a direct message, please, uh, if that's something that you would like, and then we'll try and accomplish that, Do some, have some words of Torah coming your way, even though the breakfast class is no longer available. Rabotai, there are two tibulim, two dippings that we do on the day of the seder. The, uh, the manishtana categorizes it and says, All other nights we don't even dip one time. Uh, somebody once said to me, this is a proof that the person who wrote the Haggadah must have been Ashkenaz. Because every single Sephardic person in the world, every meal is dipping in hummus, in tahina, madbucha. What do you mean? If anything, on the night of the Seder, we're cutting down on the matbilim, on the dipping from all the other meals. Um, so, the, uh, of, course, of course, that's not necessarily what it means. It means before the meal. It means a few different things that it means uh, that are not relevant to the way that we dip throughout the years. But I, I wanted to point out one very powerful idea. We talk about these two tibulim, and the Ben Ishchai shares something unbelievable. He says these two tibulim, the first one and the second one, they represent the two tibulim that we find, the two dippings that we find in the Torah. One time where it says the beginning of the story of the Jewish people's descent into Egypt, and the second, which is the Jewish people's leaving from Egypt. And what does that mean? And I'd like to just discuss a little bit this concept. The tibulim, the first one, is in a, in a little bit of water mixed with salt. So you're taking something. What are we dipping in the salt water? We're taking something like celery or we're taking potato. It's a very plain thing. It has very little taste. It's not something which is uh, uh, distinct in its flavor. And then we dip it in something, and then this thing now becomes, because of what we dipped it in, it becomes salty. The flip side is the maror, when the object itself is bitter and what we're dipping it in is actually sweet. In either scenario, the external thing is the opposite of the internal thing. It's almost as if something that looks like it is uh, salty or looks like it is sweet reveals itself to be the exact opposite of what you thought it was going to be as you bite into it. These two tibulim in the Torah represent that as well. The first tevilah is where it says about Yosef HaSadiq that the brothers trying to get rid of him, they took his coat, they dipped his coat in blood and they brought it to their their father, our forefather Yaakov, and they said, recognize the coat of your child. And Yaakov goes into mourning. But the Jewish people, they thought that they got rid of a threat, someone that was trying to sideline them to get them out of the Jewish story. That's what they thought they were doing. So here's a tivilah. They thought it was something really good, really clever. They'd managed to avert this threat. What happened? That story was directly the lead down to the, to, to the issue of Egypt. Whereas in the opposite side of the spectrum, the first thing that brought the Jewish people to Egypt was that first tivilah. 
The second tevila, which is the dipping of the ezov into the blood and putting it on the walls, on the doorposts of the Jewish people, that's the second tevila. That second tevila is also in dam, also in blood. But somehow one resu- results in, uh, in geula and one results in gelut. So what is it about these, these two tevilot, Rabotai? I have to say, I think that there's one element here which is very important. And that is that in both Tevilot, we're experiencing or discussing in many ways an element related to Emunah. With regards to the brothers and Yosef, they felt that this was someone who was coming along who was going to steal their father's attention, steal the Jewish crown, and leave them with nothing. But as we know, when a person understands that their, their uh, Parnassah comes only from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then there's no real place for jealousy from somebody else. This whole story began because they felt that God wasn't going to look after them and they needed to look after themselves. Masha'enken, the end of the story of Galut, when did the Jewish people leave Egypt? When they experience and realize that the exact opposite is true. In fact, one of the Mepharashim explains that the reason why Shabbat HaGadol, which we just had, is called Shabbat HaGadol, is because there was a tremendous miracle. What was the miracle? That the Jewish people took the sheep, which was considered to be the god of the Egyptians, and they did a Korban Pesach. And the Egyptians watched them to, you know, do the Korban Pesach, do the Shehita and the Korban Pesach, and there was nothing they could do. They stood there powerless. And this always struck me. Why? Because that's what you call Shabbat HaGadol. We just experienced 10 open miracles, you know, with God doing everything He needed to do to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were powerless. So why is it Shabbat HaGadol? Because the Jewish people took the, the God of the Egyptians and they, and they sacrificed it. And they, you know, and they had a Korban Pesach. And the answer is that all the Makot God did and the Jewish people sat down and did nothing. The miracle here was that their tormentors, the people who had you know, tortured them for so long, they knew what this would do to the Egyptians. This was the first act that they had done as a people which symbolized their true emunah. Because you have a guy who, who's your boss, who's your task lord, who's your, over, who's your overlord, who's your taskmaster, who's beaten you for so long. What are you thinking? Don't do anything to antagonize him. And here HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, take their God and slaughter it right in front of them. Let them try and stop you. That moment gave birth within the Jewish spirit, within the Jewish heart, an element of emunah that allowed them ultimately to leave Mitzrayim. This emunah is an emunah that allows a person to recognize that when something in their life tastes salty or bitter, in effect, actually, what's underneath it might actually be very sweet. And things that a person's doing that are incorrect, that seem sweet, are actually just this dipping, it's, a, it's only a coating on the outside. But as soon as you get past that little thin veneer, you'll see that exposed underneath it is something very, very different. Rabotai, recently I had a, a person approach me with a very difficult problem. A problem where better than none we should never experience. And I say this um, with the greatest amount of respect. It's a young girl and she came to my uh, house and she was very upset. And she's telling me about how she's dating someone who's not Jewish. And she's telling me how her parents are telling her 
how she needs to stop and she needs to break off and she needs to move away and all of this. And she says, Rabbi, but you know what? I, you know, I've been with him for so many, for three years already. I'm, I'm, in, such a, I'm in such a difficult circumstance, it's a difficult situation. I, I, you know, it's, I, what should I do? And I said to her, you know, I know you, you'll be surprised to hear me say this as a rabbi, but I said, but you know what, I, I, I really, I sympathize with you. She says, what do you mean? I said, I sympathize with you. I feel your pain. You know, your parents, they never did anything in the house. There was no Shabbat. There was no Kashrut. There was no religion. There was no praying. There was nothing. So your whole life, what did they teach you? They taught you that Judaism is not important. They taught you that Judaism doesn't have a place in your life or in your home. You know? And all of a sudden now that you brought home someone who wasn't Jewish, now they want to wave the Jewish flag? I mean, come on. It's not fair what they're doing to you. She says, Rabbi, so you think I, you think I should carry on dating him? I said, no, of course not. I said, but when your parents are telling you to dump him, I just, I feel your pain that this is, it's hypocritical. And I understand why, but I said, but you know what? You've been to my house enough times for Shabbat. You've been to my house enough that you know what Judaism is supposed to look like. And I said, and if you're coming to speak to me about this, instead of just running away with this guy and getting married in uh, wherever, then obviously you want somebody to give you a perspective on this, and maybe a rabbi specifically, to give you a perspective on this that will help you make what is going to be a very difficult choice for you. So I said, I want to ask you really only one question that I think is something that you need to think about. I said, yes. She said, yes. I said, tell me, do you marry somebody for now or for later? So what do you mean? Of course, you love in the moment, da da da, you have to be there. I said, of course that's true. I said, I didn't ask you about falling in love. I said, do you marry someone? Is marriage about now, in this moment, or the future? She said, of course it's about the future. You know, the house you're going to build. I, so I said, you love Shabbat. You come here, you sing the Kiddush, you sing Eshe Chayil, you sing all the songs, because you learn them. After coming on the programs that we were running in London, you're so engaged, you're so involved, you love it. She says, yeah. I said, well, what's going to be like for your children then? What's it going to be like for your children when they go to their grandparents? You know, what's going to happen? Because you love your traditions. What happens when, you know, your husband's got his, his Xmas traditions? And the same way you want to go with your kids to shul on Yom Kippur, don't you think he's going to want to go with the kids on Christmas to church? Do you have a problem with your kids going to Mass and, uh, and having the wafer and the wine? You know, is this, are you okay with this? And she says, no. I said, she goes, but he's not so religious. I said, okay, not so religious doesn't mean, I said, if you're not so religious and you're Jewish, you go to shul on Yom Kippur. If you're not so religious and you're Christian, you go to shul or you go to church on, on Xmas. I said, are you okay with that? Just tell me if you're okay with that. She said, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. I said, have you spoken? Have you spoken about it with him? She says, yeah, I have. And he said, he said it'll, it'll work itself out. I said, one rule you should just know. If you can't solve things in the beginning, don't get married thinking it's going to change. I still remember when I was a young man, I walked into a glasses store and I tried on these glasses. And I said, you know, I didn't find the pair that I loved. You know, I tried on this one, that one, whatever. The guy said to me, he goes, do you love him? I said, no. 
I said, I, I think they're all right. You know, I said, I'm sure, get used to them. He says, I want to tell you something. He says, you're only going to love them less. He says, you like them in the store, now they're new, now they're this. So you're, you're going to take everything with a pinch of salt. But where's it going to go later? It's going to get less. These are glasses. Imagine a wife. Right now, now imagine a husband. You know, because right now, everything is, it's almost very easy beforehand. But what happens when, when the commitment gets a little bit more difficult? Rabotai, this is the message. This is the message that for her allowed her to decide, allowed her to decide that she was going to make the commitment to being Jewish, to raising Jewish generations. She now is happily married. She has two Jewish kids in a Jewish school. Rabotai. Why? It was this one thing. Not now. What's going to be later? What's going to be uh, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years? What kind of life do I want to build? I think in the story of the brothers, they were thinking very much in the moment. And there was a very big problem that they were dealing with, and they tried to get rid of it. But ultimately, what wound up happening was that the problem didn't go away. If their worry was that Yosef would rule over them, he only ruled over them much more after they did that act. He only brought them to their knees in Egypt uh, after that act. When you're doing the right thing with an aim, with a look to the future, then you're able to decide that even though this might taste a little bit salty right now, underneath it it is a a piece of celery. When you're doing the wrong thing, Rabotai, so even though right now it might be sweet, you bite into it and that initial taste is so sweet. Like the Pasuk says, Mayim ginuvim, stolen waters yimtaku. They are so sweet. But you know what happens after you've stolen that? Then the FBI comes for you. You know, then you become good friends with your cellmate called Baba for protection. You know, this is what happens, Rabotai, when we think only about the now. And I think that there's a remarkable thing in the night of the Seder when we look all the way back into the past. And in many ways, as we look at our children, at the people around the table, we can almost look through their eyes into the future. If we can give them the courage and the emunah and the traditions of yesterday, then we can know that Be'ezrat Hashem will be zocher to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that are going uh, in the ways of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, living life in a way which would make Yisrael Saba Kadisha, our great forefather, Yaakov Avinu, uh, Yitzhak Avinu, Avraham Avinu, proud. And Be'ezrat Hashem will be zocher to do the most amazing things. Notice that in the Haggadah, it does not say Moshe's name at all. It mentions him as an after, almost at the end of a pasuk, nothing to do, we don't mention or talk about him. Because I don't want to distract you on this night from understanding that ultimately it is God that rules every single element of our existence. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, don't get distracted by him, he's just a messenger. Ani velo malach, ani velo shaliach. It's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. Always look beyond the surface. Baruch Adonai Le'olam.